Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Apologies for the pause in the podcast, if anyone noticed. I was actually in LA the past week for a small, relatively small Indian wedding and uh, took a few days extra to spend time with my family, visit some friends, jump in the pool with a drink. It was kind of nice and a much needed break. But I'm back at it with a fantastic guest, recognized as Time Magazine's 16 People Fighting for More Equal America. Simran Jeet Singh is a senior advisor for equity and inclusion at YSC Consulting, a professor at Columbia University, a senior fellow at the Sikh Coalition, a 2020 Equality Fellow with the Open Society Foundations, an author, a father, and a devout San Antonio Spurs fan, which I forgave him for eventually. We talk about his American story, the reasons that pushed him to embrace advocacy, his new book, Fauja Singh Keeps Going, which my seven-year-old loves, and his upcoming book, More of This Please, coming out next year. He shares many other experiences he's had growing up sick in America. He has some fantastic insights. And I just really enjoyed this episode. So I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Simran Jeet Singh. We are supported by Rocket Club. Rocket Club is the virtual entrepreneurship, coding, and robotics academy for kids age 7 through 14. And guys, my 7-year-old started the class like a month ago and absolutely loves it. They've covered topics such as blockchain and cryptocurrencies and the coding behind the technology. They've talked about stock market analysis, NFTs, aka non-fungible tokens, which I'm trying to figure out what that means. And they do all of it through a exciting gamified curriculum. So it's super engaging and fun for kids. They also have 22 additional communities, including coding, robotics, 3D printing, and Rocket Club Live. And they are fully virtual. They have members from 29 different states and also from England, Ireland, and India. It's super, super cool, super exciting. You can check them out by going to my landing page at www.rocketclub.com backslash tuckered out. And make sure you go through my page so you can take advantage of the free trial. Again, www.rocketclub.com backslash tuckered out. So, you know, I was reading about you and I loved how you described yourself as growing up with a turban wearing, brown skin, beard loving Sikh in South Texas. Because I'm, I'm, you know, not turban wearing, but I'm a brown skinned, trying to get rid of my beard as an Indian girl <laughs> from South Texas. And so I kind of feel you. So you grew up in San Antonio. Yeah. yeah. Your parents moved here in the 70s. Your dad is an engineer, like my dad, like many of our like lovely of our South Asian dads. <laughs> yes. Um, and then what does your mom do? 
my mom did her degree in English lit, and so she her dream was to actually do a PhD uh, in literature. But she yeah she loves that stuff. Um, she actually helped my dad launch the business uh, when he started his, um, and now she does a lot of the financial uh, management in our in our family. So yeah, she's she's kind of like a a jack of all trades, Jill Jill of all trades. That's Juggy, moms, Juggy right? of all trades. Yeah, I feel like that's like a lot that. of, like a lot of our moms, right? Yeah, it's so bizarre to me because growing up, I had no idea what she actually did. Um, and now I go to her for financial advice or, you know, I was trying to do some uh, government paperwork for a nonprofit a couple of years back. And I was like, who do I go to? And I was like, me. She, she said me. And I was like, oh, <laughs> how, do you know to, how do you know how to do all this stuff? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those amazing things about immigrant parents. Like they've had to figure it out and said they know how to do things. It's, I, yeah, I, I would never know how to figure it out on my own. It's amazing how much they know. And like, I feel like our moms and dads, of course, but like our moms are undercover badasses and we never yeah. knew it till like we got older. And then now we're like understanding all the stuff they did. We're like, oh my God, wow. It's pretty amazing. I feel like I still want to be like them when I grow up, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and the other funny thing is actually, um, I've, I've been notice, noticing this with my my dad and, and other dads too, Um but when it comes to parenting now for my, for my, uh, for my own daughters, uh, I can go to them with any kind of question and, and get advice that, you know, I mean, you, we can go on Google and look at parenting sites and all, all that stuff, which I, which I do also, but, uh, sometimes, sometimes it's, it's the stuff that, uh, is the most difficult that I'll go to my mom for and be like, how did you, how did you do this? What did you do in these situations? And, and I don't get the same kind of thing from my dad, right? It's a, a, a lot of the sort of vision for parenting growing up, I, I assumed was coming from, from my dad, uh, because, really? you know, a lot of those conversations happened through him, but I think the sort of wisdom a lot of the times would come through my mom and I'm just starting to appreciate that now. That's pretty cool. I know it's, it's crazy what, how adulting can like just change your point of view on things. And, <laughs> totally. and also like you kind of get to know your parents more again, maybe again, or in a new way, whatever you want to call it. But like, every time I see them now, I'm like, I'm just learning new things and they're just human beings and it's kind of cool and scary at the same time i'm like wait you can get things wrong i, I don't understand this yeah okay it's so I'll, for, I'll forgive you for being a spurs fan we'll move on okay, from that I, 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 I grew up with the rockets okay okay i also grew up with the astros and so i'm it's just it's been tough like yeah, <laughs> i'm yeah, not yeah. allowed to wear any of my jerseys my husband's a dodgers fan and just Oof. Yeah, it's been a little rough in our house. All the Astros paraphernalia is kind of put away. And I'm like, yeah. So I've been fighting yeah, that. That's but... fair enough right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, we grew up at a time when the, when the Spurs and Rockets were uh, at each other's throats. Those were fun years. So, okay, I, I don't years. have the animus anymore that I used to, but I, I, I had a hard time with Rockets fans growing up. I understand. And, and Houston <laughs> fans in general, I'm sure, are annoying. And I also lived in Dallas for a while, and I thought they were ridiculous. And then I became a Cowboys fan. I don't know. You know what? I've been out of Texas for so long, I'm happy for, for all the teams. <laughs> and so then you, I also read that, you know, your parents were re really adamant, of course, about you learning Punjabi. So you guys talked in only Punjabi in the household, obviously English in school, which kind of reminds me of my experience. Like my parents only talked in Gujarati in the house. Yeah. Like I couldn't eat my dalbat shak rotli unless we were speaking in Gujarati to each other. <laughs> and so I totally get it. Can you still speak pretty fluently? I can, um, but but it's, it's very much the sort of 
common immigrant second generation experience. Like I, I resisted and rebelled and didn't want to speak Punjabi. And so I, I actually started forgetting it once we started school. And then it was actually in graduate school where I actually started to appreciate it. And I, you know, I would study Punjabi. I would go spend my summers in Punjab. A lot of my research is in sort of the early history of the Sikh community. And so I, I actually had to relearn a lot of my basic language skills in order to, to build that up. So it was, it was funny because I, in graduate school, I studied about 13 different languages, but a few of them were um, languages that my parents knew, uh, Hindi, Urdu, Punjabi. And my mom was like, why are you paying so much money to, to have other people teach you something I could have like, taught you for free? So- <laughs> <laughs> You're like, wait a minute, that's a good point, mom. <laughs> totally, totally fair. And, and again, one of those things you don't, you don't even think about until... Until later, and you're like, oh, yeah, I, I should have appreciated like, that when I had the maybe chance. Maybe subconsciously I was really trying to do that, but then I decided to just <laughs> drop a bunch of money instead and do it that way. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's totally our generation. And so I always ask this to all my guests because we're all, we're all brown. Was it a typical South Asian household where mom and dad pretty strict on, like, dating and, like, the career path they wanted you to take? It was, I would say it's a, it was atypical. Like definitely it was, there were many things that were typical. Like we didn't, we didn't talk about dating. We didn't, we, we didn't have a choice, but to try hard in school, right? Like those were kinds of, those were assumed. But my parents were pretty progressive. I, I think maybe gender had a role to play in it because I come from a family of four boys, no sisters. Four um, boys. Wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're a mom, poor mom. I'm going to give her a hug. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so it wasn't terribly strict. I I think there were were a lot of moments where we had to push the envelope with our parents to to open things up. And and I remember having arguments with them where we would say, but everyone else is doing it. And it would be, I mean, you, you know, every teenager says that, but it would be literally everybody else's parents. He'd be like, you know, like in middle school, going to the, going to the dance, like all my friends were going and for some reason for my parents, it was a big deal. And we had to actually have conversations around that. And so like that, that was definitely true. But at the same time we would have, when we were in high school, we, we had this sort of open door policy for all our friends. So like whoever wanted to stay whenever they're always welcome. And so we like, it would be co-ed sleepovers and, you know, we could stay at our friends' places like that too. And so in that sense, it was pretty chill and very, very atypical from, you know, the experiences of a lot of my other friends who I talked to. The other thing I'll say is in terms of profession, our parents really pushed for us to do well in school. I, I didn't really do that well in school. Um, middle school, high school, I just didn't really care or see, see anything we were learning as being relevant uh, to real life. And it was only later that I realized that they were coming from the psychology of, uh, of stability. Like they really wanted us to just have stability. So, so even when I bucked the trend and, and moved into a career path, that's not traditional in South Asian communities. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they were only comfortable once I got the acceptance letter from Harvard because for them that was stability. And I was like, wait, so now you're okay with this. And and my parents were like, yeah, well you can, like you can lean into this degree as, as a safety net. And so we don't have to worry about you ending up in a, in a place where, you know, you, you can't take care of yourself. And so that's, that, that's the moment where I realized it wasn't really about some particular profession. It was, it was more about how, how do we ensure, and now I'm thinking about the same thing for my own kids, right? Like how do I ensure that they're, that they have access to whatever opportunities 
will make them happy. Um, right. right. Like, so, so I, I see it now, but growing up, I was, I was a little bit unsure of, of what their intentions were when they were yeah. pushing me towards doing better. Look, the word stability that you said and how your parents felt again, um, this, you're my 56th episode. Every single one wow. of my guests has said the same thing. Really? Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I, I just think it's a common thread with our parents because they obviously came here for that reason they didn't have the choices we had, you know, they had to, to make, make it happen. They came here for higher education. I think for them, nothing else really made sense. And so I kind of started this podcast because I had gone through so many different careers the past 20 years, starting off with trying to be a doctor and trying to be the good Indian girl, getting a C in organic chemistry and thinking, okay, well, not going to make it there. So, and then went to law school and I mean, then was a backup dancer. I mean, I, I went through it all and Part of me was angry at my parents for not being able to guide me. At the end of the day, I wish I had gone to journalism school is what my passion is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Podcasting, writing. I mean, this is what I love doing, but I understand why they couldn't. They just did what they said and guided me the way they thought was right. You know, I think for all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a totally common thread. I got to ask you then really quick. The fact that you got co-ed sleepovers is a very big deal. So your parents are like way ahead. Did you yeah. go to prom? Did, did you go to prom? I went to prom twice, actually. I went oh. as a junior and then I went as a senior. Oh, so so yeah. you were one of those cool guys that got invited twice. <laughs> yeah. All um, right. I see how yeah. it is. <laughs> I, I had to get set up, but that's okay. It's fine. <laughs> and and I, this is kind of a tough question because I'm sure there's a lot to unpack here. But what can you say is maybe your biggest takeaway or learning lesson? I know there's a lot, but one of the biggest ones from each of your parents. Oh yeah, that's a heavy question. I know. Um, <laughs> all right, off off the top of my head, I would say from from my dad. Um, <laughs> okay, here's a good one. So so from my dad, uh, you know, he's a he's an engineer turned entrepreneur. You know, so he's he's a business executive effectively, um, and he would do these leadership seminars with us on 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 weekends. Uh, and I hated them growing up. I mean, I, I just hated them. <laughs> what teenager wants to spend their time hanging out with their family on a Saturday okay. and like talking through leadership? I, I mean, not me. Um, <laughs> but there was one that really stuck out that actually I think about a lot now. And I actually have been writing about it recently. Uh, but we did a seminar on, on values. And when we actually wrote out a value statement for our family, uh, a mission statement and, and a list of all our values. And I actually still have that. Um, and I still look at it. I have it on my desktop, on my computer. Uh, I refer to it often when I'm in uh, situations where I don't know what to do. And, and it's something that he really instilled in us. I mean, all throughout our years, but th this is just one example. Uh, every evening uh, we would sit down but before the values uh, statement uh, and we would read through this anthology of, literature, mostly Western, uh, that was called the Book of Virtues. And every day we would read at least one anecdote or poem and then we'd talk about it. So it was like this really like cliche, dorky thing that our family did at my dad's insistence. But that to me, that's probably it. Like, how do you live a life where you're, um, where you're bringing your values to bear uh, right. on a daily basis? So that's the right. big one for my dad. Um, I think from my mom, it's probably... Um, seeing what love looks like in action. Um, she's one of those people whose, whose love language is service. She's constantly just doing things for other people. 
uh, and she doesn't really talk about it. And, you know, I, I think once in my life, she said, I love you to me. And I, I was just like weirded out by it and never responded. And, and we've never tried again. Um, but, it's never tried again. Where, <laughs> but it's one of those things where like, I'm not the same way with my girls. Like I can say it, but I definitely can't say it to my parents. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's what I get from my mom. It's, it's selfless service. Um, Seva. Seva, as we call it in Punjabi. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, that's, that's it. Like, that's what I, like when I think about what service and, and, and love looks like, like I, I, the, the, like what I've seen with my mom is the first thing that comes to my mind always. Two good takeaways there. And before I get into like the rest of your education and your, what you're currently doing, obviously Sikhism, we can't sum it up in this podcast, obviously. I have a lot of Sikh friends. Um, I actually interviewed Manpreet Singh. She's from Houston. I do, from Houston, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So she, I interviewed her. She's a good friend of mine. Oh, she's great. I interviewed her about the farmer's protest, actually. Got it. She, she talked about Sikhism a little bit. And I kind of just, because my... My listeners are from kind of everywhere um, and they're not mm -hmm. all South Asian. And I'm going to try to sum it up in like a couple sentences, even though it's a huge religion, but I kind of want to get to the basis of it really quick. I know the founder is Guru Nanak. Mm -hmm. And the basic belief is that there's a single divine force and that this single divine force resides in everyone. And therefore everyone is treated, should be treated equally or is equal. Exactly. That's totally what I, I mean. That's the first thing okay. that I say when somebody says, give me a sentence on what, what Sikhism is about. That's it. Right. Okay. Like if you believe that everyone's connected, then you treat them that way. There's no space for discrimination. Right. Uh, you feel like you, you want to everyone to uh, live happy lives. You want to reduce suffering. You care about justice. Like that's, that's exactly it. So yeah, I, I love that summary. And the other cool thing because I think a lot of people know about the five articles of faith, right? There are the long uncut hair, the steel bracelet, the wooden comb, the small sword, and the soldier shorts, the cachera, mm -hmm. cachera, right? Cachera, exactly. This might sound a little silly, and I don't know why I didn't know this, but I didn't realize that women wore the turban as well. I've, I guess I've never seen any of my sick girlfriends wear it. Yeah, no, it's it's not silly. It's it's uh it's less common for sure. Okay. Uh, it's optional. Like you know, the the tradition is and and the teachings are that um, women have access to every part of the faith as as men, and so there's no gender discrimination there. But it's definitely true that it's I more love, common I love for that, men by the way, because like that's one thing sometimes I find in religions. I'm Hindu, and the Hindu in all religions, this gender inequality. Yeah, exactly, and and I mean the the. The reality is in, in practice, sometimes the patriarchy creeps in, oftentimes the patriarchy creeps in, right? Like that's real. Uh, but at least the, the tradition is clear and the Sikh teachings are clear that there's no space for gender discrimination. So um, how people behave is this is a different story always, right? And that's the challenge of, of religion sometimes. Yeah, no, I thought that was that was really cool. Anyways, I know that's not even 0.001% of the religion, but I just wanted to explain the, the basic idea of what you guys believe in. And so you end up going, you get a PhD, a master's, I think in philosophy, an MA from Columbia University. You get your Harvard degree, you get an MTS. What is an MTS, by the way? Uh, master's in theological studies. Theological studies. Okay. And then you start off at Trinity in San Antonio. Right. Exactly. Teaching there. Yeah. yeah, you, get, yeah. you get a BA from there. So you, you kind of mentioned it, but your parents initially were a little bit like, what are you doing? What's happening? <laughs> and, and then I read in, in one of your interviews, during 9-11, you were a senior, 
And that obviously impacted all of us. And that kind of impacted perhaps your educational choices or your path. Exactly. Like actually, even when I applied to to go to graduate school, I, I, my parents were like, what are you doing? But I was also like, what am I doing? I, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but it was very much informed by uh, my interests post 9-11 of seeing what was happening to to my community um, and, and to communities that I actually didn't even know yet, um, but had, was realizing that, that we were uh, experiencing something really similar. And I started getting involved in, in you know, non nonprofit social justice kind of work. And, you know, as a college student, you're really just getting a taste of it, right? Like, I, I, I don't even think I was really helping the organizations. I was just learning about what, what the issues were uh, and probably like getting in their way a little bit. No, I think um, you're learning. I mean, like you're at least absorbing the information. That's that's a lot more than most, most people do. It's true. Yeah. And I, I mean, I just got a ton out of those experiences and, and I knew at least I cared about that. I didn't care about much besides sports at that time, um, but but I cared about the the social justice stuff and, and what was happening to my community. And so uh, I kind of just threw my applications in uh, to the pool and just said, let me, let me see if I can even get into grad school, uh, on, on the basis of, you know, I was interested in religion and race because that was my experience as, as a Sikh who was being racialized and then perceived as Muslim and attacked for, and then seeing Muslims attacked and, and all that stuff. And so that's what I was interested in. And then I, and, and I said, let me just go to grad school and figure it out. And, and what I really wanted to do was tie together um, the academic world, right? Like it was the only way that I knew to have power in storytelling. Like who gets to tell your stories? I, I, I was like, well, my professors do. They're the ones who are writing books. Like, let me do that. Um, so it was that. And then also I wanted to get into the social justice space. And so, so I wasn't really sure uh, which direction I would go in. And it was, uh, at Harvard, where I started seeing that it's actually possible to do both at the same time, I, I started meeting uh, some of my professors who were who were pretty active uh, in the justice world, and and that sort of gave me a fresh perspective on on what it is that I could actually do. Right. Rewinding back a little bit, I, I wanted to ask you: Did you experience any kind of racism or issues after nine eleven, or any time growing up in San Antonio? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, and there were there were common uh, encounters with racism. I can I can you know remember stories from when I was a child, preschool, elementary school, middle school. Wow. I mean, all throughout. Um, it was especially true, I think, in, in places where we were regular uh, people. People knew us. It was it wasn't really an issue, right? Like so, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, on our own sports teams, it wasn't like like we were we were fine. Uh, and I have very few stories uh, about those uh, contexts. Uh, it, it would really, I think things would ramp up as we traveled around Texas, especially for sports. You know, all four of us brothers uh, were really involved in, in basketball, soccer. I mean, we played everything. Okay. Uh, we traveled all over. And, and when you get to areas where people have never seen people like you and, uh, you know, competition gets intense and emotions get heated and, and people come after you. And so there was a lot of that. So yeah, there were there were all you know I have tons of stories from from that growing up, um, but but things definitely ramped up after nine eleven. Okay, racism was not new for me, but the intensity of it really grew. Right, we could tell you know just walking down the street or going to the grocery store or whatever, uh, people were looking at us differently. They would say uh, things more often. Um, the threats came more regularly to our house. 
um, things like that. And so, so safety became a really uh, important conversation for us at home, like physical safety. And also within that, we talked quite a bit about what what an appropriate response would be in right. situations where people came after us. And so this is, this is where the sort of the, the value stuff has become really uh, handy for me. Um, where, where my father, I, I remember him saying one day after, after a particularly bad incident, he said, you can't control how people treat you, but you can all, always control how you respond. Um, and, and you want to respond in ways that you'll be proud of. You want to respond with your values and, and we need to start practicing that. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was real for us, uh, for sure. We were one of the only sick families in, in San Antonio. There was a really small community then. Right. Uh, it's grown quite a bit now. And I'm, I'm really happy for, for kids growing up there now that they have more, more company and support, right. um, in, in a context that can be pretty, pretty isolating otherwise. And again, this might be a silly question, but was there ever a time as a kid, cause obviously as a young, as a teenager, young kid, it's easier to get angry faster. Was there ever a time you just wanted to take the turban off and just be like, no, I can't do this. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, not, a, not a silly question at all. And I think, you know, I, I would say, so, so the human brain is, is funny, right? Like you don't really always control what goes through your mind. And definitely those, those thoughts still cross my mind now, if I'm being honest, um, I don't really entertain them now. Uh, but there was a point I, you know, I remember specifically in preschool. So this is, I mean, think about how, how, uh, yeah. scarring it must have been for me to be able to remember it. But I, I remember in preschool getting made fun of, they, they, they were basically calling me a girl for my long hair, which, you know, at that age, what's, what's more embarrassing when you only really know, right, uh, right. you know, that, that sort of way of identifying yourself on, on the basis of gender. Yeah, it's boy and girl. That's it. That's all you need to exactly, know. Exactly. Right, right. Exactly. And, um, I came home that night and, and had planned to cut my hair. Uh, I, I, I snuck the, the scissors. They were like yellow kid scissors with a clown on them. I still remember them. I snuck them under my pillow and, and thought that I was going to solve all my problems by cutting my hair. And, and I, you know, probably some combination of me being four or five years old. And so I probably passed out before I, before I, I, I thought I'd wait until my parents went to bed and that, <laughs> yeah. that didn't work out. And then also, um, you know, kids are resilient and I kind of forgot about it the next morning when I woke up and, didn't go through with it, but yeah, it's just an example of, of course, it's, I, I think it's really natural for, for people to have thoughts like that. I can't um, believe that, that you, it goes, I mean, I can, I can believe it. The fact that you can remember it so vividly, all these experiences that you went through must have formed your choices, your educational choices, your career path presently, right? I mean, it has to be part of it. It must be. And it, it's probably subconscious. Like right. even if you ask me up until I started writing this book that I'm working on, where I, where I start sharing some of these stories, if you'd asked me two years ago, um, if I'd ever thought about cutting my hair or like if my childhood was hard, I'd probably be like, no, no. not really. Right. Like, you don't, you, you sort of normalize it. You know, life is what it is. It's what you know. And, and overall, I'd say my childhood was really happy. Uh, you know, we had our encounters with racism. We also had, you know, great lives. We, right. we were outdoors all the time. We were four brothers, always playing sports. Um, the Spurs were good our entire childhood. <laughs> so like we're always watching all games. Right, all right, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, life was, life was good. But, but yeah, it's, it's when you sort of start reflecting on 
some of these memories you have and, and you start asking yourself, why do I remember this thing? Like, what, right. what was it about this moment that stuck out? And what are the things I remember from that age? I mean, it's, it's actually uh, not <laughs> the, the happiest memories uh, that, that come to my mind, at least when I'm thinking about the, that part of my life. And, and so there, there must be some sort of psychological residue that, that right. really informs who we become. You know what, Simran? I really believe, like, same kind of thing. Great. Childhood was great. Family was strong, all that. But as I'm getting older and reflecting back, I have these memories that aren't so great. And there are times I've told my husband, I'm like, I mean, everything's fine, but I just think it'd be good for whoever can do it to do therapy, just to, like, really understand yourself. I've been really wanting to do it just to, like, understand my my childhood a little bit better and, and why I do the things I do now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it's it's been a real, um, it's been an eye-opening experience, but it's actually been a real privilege having the time and and the the space to focus on on my own memories as I've been writing this book. Because, I mean, otherwise we we just kind of go on with our lives and never pause to ask ourselves who we are and why we are the right. way that we are. And and if we start digging into that, we can uncover some really powerful insights about, about who we are and also then uh, who we can become. And so, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that point in time. And you're a father, you know, I think having kids really puts that into light for me. It's, it's so important to try to understand yourself a little bit more, right? Cause patterns repeat, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then I have to ask, obviously we know the past few years have been turbulent in this country <laughs> How have things been for your family? Have you faced any racism or any issues currently? Yeah, we we have. Um, I would say that they are uh, once again uh, accelerated in the way that they were immediately after nine eleven. Um, the the numbers and statistics on hate crime bear that out. That this is not just anecdotal. It's also the what what we're seeing right. uh, across the country. Um, yeah, and, and I would say, you know, the the challenges that we've faced are in, in many ways particular in that, you know, we, we look a certain way and therefore we, we're seen and perceived as threatening and, and so people treat us that way. And, and I'd also say that there's what's even more concerning to me about uh, where our country has gone and where we're heading right now um, is the it's the inability that people have that, that our society, that our culture has, has, I, I, I want to say developed, but it's, it's like a regression. Uh, we, we really have trouble seeing one another's humanity. And that's, that's really scary to me as, as a father, as I'm thinking about the kinds of cases that I've worked on, um, in terms of hate violence and, and looking at what people feel, like they're willing to do to one another, how right. they're willing to treat one another. And I'm like, Oh my God, like, do I, <laughs> do I feel comfortable raising kids in this world or not? And, and what would it take uh, for us to be able to, to see one another's dignity again? I, I think that's a really serious question. There's not one answer to this. Um, in my last interview, I was talking to um, this girl, Rashma Patel, who's running for NYC comptroller. And we were talking, you know, we all kind of grew up in the eighties thinking we were, I don't know. I still thought growing up, I was in a post-racial America, you know, 
yeah. whatever, whatever reason. And obviously the past few years have shown that we're not. This all didn't come to light just because of this past president. Why have we regressed? What's happened? Oh, I, I, I think it's a, it's a super complicated question. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, you can point to a million things. Um, I know. I, I'm happy to point to to a couple, but I think there is, um, and, and you know, this this draws out of my understanding uh, as as a sick. There is a real ugliness that comes out of fear. Um, that when we're fearful, uh, we begin trying to protect ourselves, and we begin justifying our behaviors on the basis of, of self-preservation. And so I think that's a really, that's a really serious issue. And, and we, you know, we don't, we don't really talk about fear in the society, but you and I have really grown up in like literally uh, the age of terror, um, right? We talk about the war on terror, which has been most of our adult lives. Right. And, and the, and, and we've seen how uh, the threat of violence has been used to strip people of their rights, right? Like just think about, going through airport security and, and what we uh, now do in our securitized system to give the perception that we're safe, right? Like we're willing to do anything. And, you know, I'll, I'll speak from my own right. uh, experience as, as a turban sick, you know, when, when I go through TSA security at the airport, um, the standard policy is that I go through secondary screening, right? It's, it's a practice of racial profiling and and when i bring that up to people and just say hey this is this is racism right this it's racial profiling is racism if somebody is defending it their their go to response is well it's better safe than sorry right right like we we i understand that it makes you uncomfortable but it everybody's but, but it's worth it for the greater for the greater good or exactly right, exactly right. and so like i think fear and and our willingness our, our normalization of fear our willingness to accept fear as part and parcel of our daily lives um, has created the conditions for us to really start chipping away at how we are seeing one another because we're operating on this basis of you are not my neighbor, you are my you are my enemy, you are a potential threat. You are the, you are the other. It's like the other exactly. now, right? Exactly. So I, th I think that is a really important part of the conversation that that doesn't really get brought up. Right? Like there, there are all sorts of other things that people say all the time, and I, you know, we don't need to rehearse those here. But but I think fear uh, and and the normalization of fear uh, has has been a really important part of of what's happening in our country. Right. From fear sprouts insecurity and ego and just a bunch of nasty things that that can grow from that and so and and then just to sum up your uh, education journey you're basically you know a scholar of religion and religion has brought us together torn us apart has caused wars at the core of all humans having studied so many religions do you think we all just really want and believe in the same ideologies? It's it's a good question because I think that if you ask the question that way, it goes beyond religion, right? Like it's it's this really funny thing where I grew up in this family that was trying to preserve this tradition in a country where it takes a lot of work uh, to 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 instill a heritage and to learn these practices and and. And histories. And I was probably in my 20s when I was talking to my parents one day and they were like, yeah, sick, sick wisdom is about 
finding happiness in your life. I'm like, oh, that's, that's so simple. So I was like, what's the point of all this? Like, why, why are you teaching me all this? And they're like, we want you to be happy. I was like, oh, I want to be happy. That sounds cool. Yeah. And I, I think like if you, if you boil it down and sometimes the most profound points and the most obvious points are actually the same thing. Right. And so right. in this, in this case, I think that's true. Where like, what are, what are these religions trying to do? They're trying to help you find happiness. And, right. and there are all sorts of words and terms and concepts that we use that I think function as synonyms for happiness, right? Like you might say enlightenment, you might say salvation, you might Peace, say liberation, love. Yeah. All of these things. But like, if you boil those down, like, what are they talking about? They're, they're talking about the absence of, of suffering, right? right? Liberation, right? What are you being liberated from? Enlightenment, where, what, what was the darkness, right? I think that's, I think that's what we're looking for, uh, whether it's in religion or otherwise. And I think that's, it's why I have such, difficulty in understanding, you know, the, the tensions that come among religious communities and also between those who identify as religious and those who don't, because like, even if you're not religious, you're looking for the same thing, right? right. Like that's, I think that's what it all boils down to. So yeah, absolutely. I think you're right there. See, you were able to answer it kind of in a couple <laughs> sentences. You can, kind you of, can do kind it. Of. You can, I, don't worry. I, I know you're a scholar and that probably is bugging the shit out of you. So you probably need to like have another episode on that. Okay. I want to talk about what you're doing now, which is a lot of cool stuff. So currently you are, are you a visiting professor at Columbia? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Union, Union Seminary, which is tied to Columbia. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and there are you teaching uh, religion classes? I'm teaching uh, Buddhist history, actually. Oh, yeah. I need to come so, take yeah. a class from you. It's fun. <laughs> it's really fun. And then out of curiosity, just because I'm Hindu, have you, are you teaching Hinduism at all? Or have you? I'm not currently. I have. Okay. Um, when I was a grad student, I was teaching Hinduism at Columbia. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, I haven't had the opportunity to, to teach Hinduism or Sikhism recently, actually. Can you, can you come to Greenwich and teach our kids all this stuff, please? Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just throwing that. I grew up going to Hindu camps. Like I think you went to Sikh camps. Yeah. I grew up with very religious parents and I feel like I'm not executing well with my kids. And so having, <laughs> having a bit of guilt for that. Um, yeah. Well, that's a good religious feeling too, right? Yes. Like, yeah, of course. The guilt of not being good enough. Totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. It's all, always there. It's beautiful. And then, of course, the book, Fauja Singh, keeps going. Like I mentioned, yeah. my seven-year-old daughter at school had a project. They read it in the assembly. And this is the first ever children's book from a major publisher to center a sick story. And I think I read in your one of your articles that Fauja is actually 108 now. Oh, he's actually 100. He just turned 110. 110. Uh, this oh April. my god. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we had a we had a birthday party for him online. I was just so, about to ask you. Did you so meet cool. him? Have you talked to him? I've met him a few times now. Um, I haven't met him since the pandemic started. Okay. Um, but he's incredible. I mean, he's one of these people where, I mean, first of all, to be to be able to run a marathon at the age of a hundred, like you, you have to be someone special. Um, but, but also on top of that, like the, the warmth and energy he has, the love he has for life. I mean, I, I, the first time I hung out with him, I was really struck by how funny he was. I mean, not necessarily funny, but he was just laughing and smiling the whole right. time and joking. Like he was, he was actually joking. And so like that to me is maybe, um, the most magnetic thing about him, that he's just somebody who loves life so much. And it's probably, 
his secret to living so long, right? I was like, going to say, I'm not really surprised <laughs> that he's like that because I don't think you can be any other way, you know, and then be in his condition. Exactly. Exactly. No, I mean, he's had his challenges uh, throughout right. his life. We, I read about that in the book and, you know, he, he went through depression, which I don't, I don't, I don't bring up directly in the book because the book is for uh, young children. Mm-hmm. Um, but but he uh, lost his wife and then his his son died in a freak accident uh, when he was in his 80s. And then he moves to England um, as an immigrant to go live with his other kids. And he doesn't know anyone there. He doesn't speak the language. I mean, it really made me think about uh, our parents and, and what an immigrant experience must, how, how isolating it must feel actually ended up talking to my own parents quite a bit about their experiences after uh, learning about his. And so, yeah, he, he definitely has had uh, major challenges in his life uh, where he has felt excluded. Um, he's felt like giving up, letting things go. Um, but, but I think it's that sort of resilience that, that really spoke to me about his story. That's amazing. And then do your girls are do they understand that daddy wrote this? Is it exciting for them? Yeah, they do. The they they both understand it now. Um, the five year old is actually she's reading now, and so she's like uh, really into it. Uh, the three year old is like a wild child, so she's constantly running around the house. Uh, and when I tell her to stop, she's like, "No, I'm for Justin." I'm like, "Okay, like, <laughs> I should have awesome. wrote about like, yeah. <laughs> I should have written about a like a monk who is meditating, so she calm down a little bit." You should tell her, <laughs> yeah, do that in 97 years, and then you got it down. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And that's out. I know that came out last year, so people can get it on Amazon or pretty much anywhere. Pretty much anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. awesome. Um, well, we will get it in our house because my daughter already has his picture in our house. Awesome. And then you are currently writing or, or maybe finished with your next book called More of This, Please. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually just about to submit the final revision. So that's been, oh man, it's been work in progress for two years now. I've been working on it. I'm ready to be done with it. But it's it's about what sick wisdom has to offer our world today. Uh, you know, the various challenges, like how do you, how do you really love your neighbor? Um, how do you respond to hate with love? Um, or how do you, how do you confront the ugliness of our world without getting sucked into it? So these are, it's a lot of stories, uh, introducing, uh, six to the world. And, and within that, uh, some of the wisdom that I've taken from the tradition that's really helped me navigate, uh, some of the challenges that I've encountered. And so I, I found it to be all really helpful. And I, I think, uh, and I hope that it'll be useful for, for other folks as well. Well, it's super relevant, especially today, because it feels like everyone is just gone insane. <laughs> I mean, there's so much anger out there, you know? So much anger, exactly. So much anger. And so I can't think of a more relevant topic right now. And when does that come out? That comes out a year from now. So 2022. Articles of Faith. Are you still writing a weekly weekly column? Uh, it's a monthly column now. Okay. But yeah, I am writing regularly for for religion news service. That's the, that's the outlet. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in exploring and telling stories of, of communities that are typically left on the margin. So I write about Hindus and Buddhists and Sikhs and Muslims, all the, all the leftovers, as I call them. Um, and the how, others, <laughs> we're not the others. The we're others. cool. We're cool. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. on, and that's online as well. 
that's online as well. Okay. Yeah, and I'll, I'll write for other outlets as well. I contribute to, to Time and to Washington Post and all that. But uh, religion services, religion news services, my regular home. Yeah, I uh, went to your site and, and was looking at all your articles. I was like, oh boy, we're going to be talking for like three hours if I go through this. But I did pick a few that I want to talk about. Spirited Podcast. Are we still doing that? Is that... We are not still doing that. Okay. That was a good first season. Um, okay. Yeah, and it didn't get renewed. Okay. I saw, I, I love the cover, the art cover art. It was awesome. Oh man. The podcast itself. I loved, it was so fun. And just talking to fascinating people who've done amazing things about their, about their lives and, and their, how they've sort of grown up in, in, into justice and, and the work they do. But um, yeah, hopefully I can do more of that in the future. I really you so that. need to a, you have legit things to talk about and you also have a good voice. And so that's, that's what, that's all you need for a podcast. <laughs> yeah, a combination. Yeah. Great, great combination. You should, you should, you should totally get back on that. I, I'm going to listen to um, the Rabia episode. I'm very interested in that one. Oh, it's so good. You know, one of the interesting things, and, and this happened in my conversation with Rabia Jodhari too. I love this about podcast. Like you're just hanging out with people yeah. and, and talking to them about life and they end up saying things that they never expected to say. Yeah. And so Rabia, in our conversation, it, it happened so many times in, in these sessions where people were like, oh, I I never talk about that. I, I don't know why it came out, but, but Rabia talked pretty openly about her experiences with domestic violence yeah. and what it took to overcome that and, and the stigma of it within the Muslim community and, and all that. And so... Yeah, I really, really got a lot out of that conversation with her. It's crazy how podcasting has become and is such a intimate form of communication because it really is. You really are talking one on one, even though you're publishing it out to the world. Yeah, but exactly. the comfort level is like talking to a friend on the phone, right? With 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 editing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With a good editor. With editing, course. trust me, I have a lot of <laughs> I have a lot of ums in my in my episodes. And then, of course, you speak. Your speaking engagements are kind of. Do you, I mean, is it for corporations, organizations, like whoever wants to talk about DEI? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll talk to anybody who wants okay. to listen to me, okay. which is, yeah, pretty much anyone other than my wife is down for, <laughs> <laughs> for that. Uh, but and, yeah, I, and I mean, your three-year-old, and your three-year-old. For sure. And my three-year-old, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do preschool. So I, I, I'm doing now more consulting with, uh, in the corporate space. And okay. I think before I was more resistant to it because it felt, um, it felt like it didn't really accomplish anything. Um, but I've, I've actually uh, started working with this consulting firm uh, that I find, find fantastic. And, and they've been uh, really good about bringing through a combination of, of how do you, how do you operate in these contexts and also have a big impact. And so, yeah, I've, I've started to enjoy that as well. I, you know, I went through your many articles and of course the one that I wanted to ask you about was the farmer's protest. From what you know, the Sikh community in India, what is their relationship with the government of India now? Oh, yeah, that is that is a loaded question. I'll, I know. I mean, I'll, I'll try and answer it as, as honestly as I can. As, as we sit here, it's the first week of June. This is the same uh, week that in, in 1984, uh, the Indian military was unleashed on, on the Golden Temple, the right. Bar Sahib of Amritsar, uh, which is the historical epicenter for Sikhs. And, you know, I think that... That's that's significant for me as I'm answering this question because the collective memory uh, of 1984, both both the military assault on their bar side and then the the subsequent pogroms in in Delhi uh, in November after Indira Gandhi was assassinated, um, those those experiences are very much alive uh, in the Sikh psyche today, 
and, and, you know, as a historian, I want to say that there are no moments that stand alone in a vacuum, right? Like everything happens in a context. And so we can point to these incidents, these attacks and just say, oh, that, that was horrible. But what we also have to realize is that these are part of larger systems of violence against not just a particular religious minority group, but all minority groups in right. India. And I think that's that's been a core part of the tension between Sikhs and the Indian state. Um, that Sikhs uh, have been persecuted themselves. And also, uh, as part of our tradition, we believe that it is our responsibility to stand up against any injustice that's happening. Right. So as we're seeing the rise of the of the Hindu right uh, and right wing nationalism take over the country and, yeah. and really uh, devastate minority groups, whether it's Muslims and, and following the, the Citizenship Amendment Act, uh, wh whether it's watching what's happening uh, in Kashmir with the occupation there. I mean, it's just over and over again, these things where those wounds of the past several decades, coupled with what's happening today, uh, it makes for a situation in which people really don't trust the government. And, and if you want to boil it down to something that simple, I think that's it, right? Yeah. Like there's mistrust. Right. And, and, and the farmers protest speaks to that, right? Like these, these legislation, these, these bills are passed uh, through parliament, they're forced through. Um, and it's the Sikh community who in, in Punjab, who starts pushing for, who starts pushing for review, they're, they're protesting, they're resisting, and, and the rest of the country joins in. And, and these things, I, I think it's really difficult to, to disentangle them and say, well, this is just about the laws. I mean, it's not. It's, it's about the entire history of disenfranchisement and, and the, the government's uh, neglect of these communities and their oppression of these communities. I think that's, that's probably how I would summarize it for you if, if I had only two minutes to connect with us. <laughs> Yeah. Would you consider maybe what's been happening there with the farmers' protest and the change of laws? Would you consider that the boiling point? Yeah, I mean, you you could put it that way. The I think you could you could consider it a boiling point um, because essentially uh, what happens is you you have pressure and pressure and pressure, and suddenly something bubbles over, and and you don't know what it is exactly led up to that moment, right? There's a lot more uh, to a boiling point than just the, just the degree change, but you notice the degree change and you're like, okay, this is, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. This right. is what triggered this response. And you know, it's not just that single degree. It's all of the degrees that were elevated prior to that. Uh, so yeah, that's, I think that's a really, that's a really good way of saying it. And, and what you're noticing now is that the the protests are still going on. Right. Um, it's been uh, half a year. These protesters have sat through and protested through and marched through inclement weather, uh, the harsh cold in in Delhi, um, police brutality. I mean, they, they've they've endured all sorts of uh, challenges, and and I think that speaks to the the depth of their conviction, right? Um, and so and so as you're talking about a boiling point, it's like yes, and we also have to acknowledge that it's not just 
uh, you know, something boils and then, it, and then, and then you turn down right. the heat and it's done. Heat is still there. And so, and so it's, it's, yeah, the, the, if we're using that analogy, I, I just want to say that as it's turned into a boiling point, there's still this feeling of like, there's a real pressure cooker situation, right? Like it's, it's, it's continuing to stay hot. Um, and that can combust and it's, it's incredibly dangerous. And a lot of people who are watching, and who are aware of the history of how India has responded to protests uh, brutally are, are are still quite nervous about what's going to happen when the government uh, decides to crack down again. They they have multiple times already, um, and it's gotten uglier and uglier. And uh, I personally am, am am quite concerned with with where this is heading. Do you have family in the in that area? I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is everyone okay? Yeah, and I mean, it's it's. It's been really difficult to to watch in, in the midst of the second wave of the of COVID there too, and, right. and that's devastating India more. It's it's challenging the protesters, mm-hmm. but it's also, I mean, just on a very sort of human level, it's been incredibly difficult to sustain any kind of normalcy. I know um, in the Indian context, it's it's been really hard to watch from a distance. Definitely, I just I just lost two relatives this past few weeks, and just yeah, in general, sorry. just. I don't know how to put this lightly. I just feel like right now that country is just burning, you know, I'm like, yeah. how do we help? You know? All right. Well, I'm done with that. With the, <laughs> with the, with the deep thoughts. And I'm just going to end this with a, it's just, it's called the fast round. So first thing that comes to your mind, Uh oh. nothing too deep. Don't worry. I promise. Okay. All right. What is the best compliment you have ever received? Um, someone once told me that they want their kids to grow up to be like me. And I was like, oh, I can't think of anything higher than that. Yeah, that was pretty cool. That's pretty solid. I took that one. You took it and ran. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) How would your parents describe what you do for a living? Um, they would probably be better at describing it than I am. Um, I have no idea how to describe what I do. They'd probably say that I'm a scholar and an activist. That's okay. probably what they'd say. Maybe I should call your mom and ask her your title. She'll probably help I, you out. That would be fun. I should probably do that, yeah. <laughs> if you could have dinner with any three people, dead or alive, who would they be? Oh, man. Okay, so so Tim Duncan, the greatest spur of all time. <laughs> oh, man, of course. We had, we had to end it, it went with the spurs, of course. Um, I would love to have dinner with Guru Nanak. Uh, the founder of Sikhism. Um, so that's that's probably the nerdiest possible answer I could give. That's, that's pretty cool, actually. That's that's a good one. Um, and number three, um, I would really love to hang out with Michelle Obama. All right, good. You picked a woman. I was like, I'm, I was hoping there's a female in there. <laughs> what would you pick for your last meal? Fried chicken. That's easy. <laughs> oh, that's damn. That's the easiest, easiest question you've asked me. <laughs> Most um, people yeah. are like, oh, my mom's cooking or sushi fried chicken. <laughs> from where exactly? Um, from anywhere. Um, there is a there's a place in New York City called Blue Ribbon Fried Chicken. I don't know if you've been out there. That's good. Hill Country is good. Yeah, I, I, I just love fried chicken. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Give me anything. <laughs> All right, last question. If you can have a billboard on the largest highway in, in the U.S. forever – with anything on it, what would it be and why? I probably want a pun, like some bad dad joke. I love dad jokes. Uh, I like I like puns. So good. Um, so punny. 
if it had to be up there forever, um, it would have to be something that made me laugh. Because if it's serious, then yeah. And if I'm trying to sell anything, no, thank you. Uh, um, yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be something that just makes people smile slash groan slash roll their eyes. I think that's my that's my destiny as well, a dad. Well, now I gotta ask you. You gotta give me one uncle joke before you head out. Oh my god, <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. You can tell it to me later. I can write in the notes. But uh, you know what? Embrace, embrace the uncle, uncleness. I'm embracing the auntiness. I kind of love it. Yeah, I do. It's it's. Uh, I, I'm very glad to call myself Punjabi. So <laughs> I got the got the bun and the Punjabi for oh, sure. Oh wow! And there it is. <laughs> Man, what a cool guy. I can't wait to hang out with him and, you know, force him to go to a Rockets game. Guys, please follow Simran on Insta at SikProf, S-I-K-H-P-R-O-F. And his website is SimranJeetSingh.org, which is spelled S-I-M-R-A-N-J-E-E-T-S-I-N-G-H. As always, you can follow me, Podcast, on all socials. Is that right? All socials, whatever. And my website, tuckeredoutwithami.com. Sign up because I swear to God, this newsletter is coming out. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. This is Tuckered Out. <laughs>